secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society and we are as a people inherently and historically opposed to secret societies to secret oaths and to secret proceedings our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of the best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, as usual, very member, for making our truth journey a reality. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to all segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. And I'm happy to report that Sanitas Radio has a launch date. Tuesday, October 1st, 2013. We have a great lineup of guests that will focus on mind, body, and spirit to be healthy and live longer. That's the goal. Sanitas will do for health what Veritas is doing for the truth. Remember, this is a separate project with its own subscription, and I hope I can count on you. Visit sanitasradio.com for updates. 
And to get in touch with us for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Did you know that your thoughts are not your own? Mind control is a documented fact. The control of the actions and emotions of an unsuspecting victim has been a reality since at least the 1950s. Tonight, we will discuss the origins, propaganda, and the objectives and architects of mind control. And for this, and much more, and to help us take our thoughts back, Neil Sanders is tonight's special guest, right now on Veritas. This is Andrew Johnson, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Neil Sanders holds an MA in Film Studies, studies psychology and media production for his BA in Honors, and is a qualified hypnotherapist. Neil is considered an expert on the subject of mind control and has been studying the history of this dark art and its application by military and government intelligence agencies across the globe for many years. Neil has appeared on several television shows and made numerous radio appearances in Europe and the United States and is the author of Your Thoughts Are Not Your Own, Volumes 1 and 2. And to learn more about Neil Sanders and his work, visit his website neilsandersmindcontrol.com And directly from Nottingham, England, the land of Robin Hood, I would like to introduce Neil Sanders. Hello, Neil. Welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Mel. Thank you very much for having me on. It's my pleasure. Yesterday, I was telling you, I saw your presentation at our friend, our mutual friend, uh, Andrew Johnson's uh, lecture, and I really enjoyed it. You discussed so many things that people might be subconsciously aware, but not consciously aware. So right from the beginning, I must ask you, what led you to this road of, of questioning reality? Um, well, I mean, I've always sort of sort of found uh, like the mainstream media to be uh, a lie, really. I wasn't very taken by sports particularly and um, fashion and all these things and all these things that people are getting very excited about. I'm sort of wondering why. And then um, for university, I basically studied psychology, learned a bit about this, this sort of human mind and how it works and how things can go wrong. And just by luck, I was also studying sort of advertising and um, media production and started to notice how a lot of this is, is really the two disciplines tend to cross over an awful lot and in, in sort of scenarios that you wouldn't immediately think of, like the font or the color of the background or the imagery that's used in, in seemingly very sort of uh, innocuous and, and, and innocent advertising campaigns. There's an incredible amount of thought that goes into that because of this, the, the responses that, that your brain has, particularly your subconscious mind, to stimuli that you might not be consciously aware of, but um, you know it, it, it draws certain feelings. And, and one of a, a good example of that is uh, primary colors, things very bright, yellows and reds and stuff like that they tend to give you an idea of either danger or uh, effectiveness like very very powerful a lot of um, tools and stuff like that are colored with yellow you know sort of sledgehammers and stuff like that um jcbs and and you know the large earth moving uh, machinery just gives that idea of of sort of power um Burger King and places like that they have red and yellows and whites and blues because this affects your subconscious it makes 
your synapses fire quicker. So you get in there, you make a snap decision. You don't think too much about what you're buying because then you go, oh my God, this is horrible actually. You buy it very quickly and then you get out of there. Um, and, and, you know, this, this can be used in, in advertising. One particular example is in medicine. If you've got a, a medicine that's supposedly very strong or very dangerous or wants to give the impression that it's particularly effective, it'll be red and yellow. Like we have these things called, in, uh, in England, we have certain flu tablets and um, the strong ones are all red and yellow because it gives you the idea, weed killers are all red and yellow because it gives you the idea in your subconscious that basically, wow, this is not to be messed with. This is, you know, this will be a potent substance. Whereas um, sleeping tablets are often blue or pink. And it basically, in experiments, what they, where they've had, say, sugar pills, they've done double, double blind experiments, given people completely, um, uh, they're just sugar, they're, these tablets. They don't have an effect. Uh, and um, dependent on the color, very often people expect a result from what they expect, from what they're given. So if they're given um, a, a blue tablet, they'll say, yeah, it's making me feel a bit drowsy. If they're given a, a red tablet, they'll, they'll suggest that it's got sort of an, an amphetamine type quality. Uh, furthermore, if you've got, say, uh, a sleeping tablet, two identical sleeping tablets, one's colored red and one's colored blue, the blue one will be more effective. Regardless of the actual um, chemical compounds that are involved, the placebo effect of that color is strong enough to actually affect you. And so all of these things are sort of taken into, uh, into mind with the construction of, of advertising. Um, from then on, I went on to do um, an MA in film studies, and it was a similar sort of thing, the construction of genre, um, uh, how everything is constructed, how language is very important in, in portraying ideologies to people and, and, and um, character building and stuff like that. And all the sort of the tacits of genre, the tacits of uh, um, main characters, they, they tend to come from some sort of Jungian archetypes, the concepts of a hero or a heroine, that sort of thing. And, and you tend to apply yourself to, to the, the, uh, the sort of protagonist of the piece. And that's where you get your enjoyment out of it. Uh, and this was always just combined with an interest in things like, I was very interested in the Kennedy assassination because that's, you know, it's absolutely blatant. That, uh, and then obviously 9-11, uh, another very, very obvious um, terror, uh, no, uh, false flag operation. Uh, the, the official story is clearly not what we're being told. And from then on, I just got into investigating it more and more um, and finding out different facets of it and just discovering that the actual topic of mind control is huge. It, it's not just Manchurian candidates and assassins and that sort of thing, which it is that sort of thing. You know, there, there are uh, there's certainly that element of it. Uh, but it, it's more... The more I look into it, the, none of these uh, practical applications of mind control that people might be familiar with, you know, hypnosis, um, um, mind control weaponry, um, silent sound, the Manchurian candidate, assassins and, and uh, people like that going into schools and killing children, uh, without the sort of social controls and the, and the sort of the, the use of the media and just the use of, of people's own innate um, sort of sensory um, abilities and stuff like that uh, and instincts just to control people get people into groups get people interested in things that are completely pointless and and, and uh, facile and and just making getting people's lives so het up that they haven't got the, the time to even begin looking at at, at, uh, at the more broader aspects or, or even the more sort of the more acute aspects of 
of how we're being tricked every single day. I think it's important to go in, in chronological order because many people who listen to us may be thinking, this is just conspiracy theory. But yeah. I want to give you some facts, folks. And w can we say that a lot of the beginnings of this came from Tavistock, from Edward Bernays. I want to oh, take yeah. you back. I, I interviewed uh, Dr. John Coleman not too long ago, and we discussed oh, this great. in detail. But let, let's go back to, to the Tavistock, uh, Edward Bernays, and the, the effect that he had. Because he said he's the father of, of public relations. He strongly believed that the masses should be manipulated at the subconscious level in order to promote the survival of democracy when in fact is the established hierarchical order of the elite. Take it from there. Well, absolutely. I mean, and two of the most powerful tools that he found for, for utilizing this was um, the American motion picture and later television um, and the media. He, he utilized the press release um, along with Ivy Lee had tried this as well, but he was more successful um, the, than him. And Bernays essentially utilized the press release as an advertising um, uh, element, as an agency of, of promotion. And propaganda, um, and we'll come, we'll come on to that in, in a second. Um, where Edward Bernays got his start was actually in Wellington House. There was two propaganda houses called Crew House and, and Wellington House, and John Coleman may have spoke about this. And their essential job was to um, try and persuade the American populace that they wanted to go to war and also to create propaganda. Uh, I believe there were, there were, he was connected to Lord Northcliffe, who was behind the Daily Mail and certain other uh, newspapers in England. So immediately we can see the, the sort of cross-connection of, of media. One of the, um, the things that they actually used was, was the use of language. They started describing anybody that was, that was vocally opposed to America's joining the Second World War as um, isolationists. And it's, um, you know, they were, they, they, and this, this concept of deserters or cowards or chickens or anything like that, they also basically softened off the wars later on by referring to casualties as, um, or civilian casualties as collateral damage or uh, it's a regime change rather than an invasion, that sort of thing. So, so Tavistock was, was very involved with that. And um, the two people that were, were sort of key to, to this um, at the start were, um, as you say, Edward Bernays and Walter Lippmann. And what they both sort of advocated um, is appealing to the, the herd sensibilities of, of people. They noticed that, you know, you get people into crowds, you get people all sort of in one sort of psychological direction and they're far more malleable and they're far more easy to uh, manipulate, particularly when they don't realise that they are being manipulated. And one of the sort of key facets that both of them uh, promoted uh, in their own way was either the uh, the manufacture or the engineering of consent and what this is is just broadly you know the the, the most basic explanation of it is it's the defining of uh, norms the defining of societal status quos anyway sorry so the manufacture of consent which is essentially the sort of the, the concept of creating norms like what is normal um, societal roles, the man is the breadwinner, uh, the man should be masculine, the woman should be demure, any of these sort of, sort of things. And, and, and these, these are social control elements that are used. Um, Walter Lippmann actually took it a step further. He, he noticed that basically people make their decisions upon their informed knowledge of a situation. And essentially, 
uh, pictures in their heads. And the example that, that he gives is a concept of what is gold? What do people assume that gold looks like? So, so you know, it's a lump of yellow metal. So if somebody finds a lump of yellow metal that for all intensive purposes they assume is gold, they will react as if they've found a great big nugget of gold. They'll be happy or whatever. So where have they got that picture in their head? of what gold looks like. Where do we get this concept of authority? Where do we get this, this concept of you must listen to the police, you must listen to teachers, you must listen to so-and-so because uh, authority is imbued with knowledge? Where, where do we get these concepts? Well, we get them from the actual elite. They sort of disseminate these things as the established norms and use concepts like the term isolationist or whatever to, um, to actually sort of, um, you know, to, to, to drive other people out and, and, you know, nobody wants to be isolated and, and, and on their own. Um, and an example of that, just to sort of bring it to, to, so that people can understand it, is the concept of, uh, of a terrorist, for example. Because a lot of people would immediately know um, uh, what a terrorist looks like or what they assume a terrorist looks like. There's numerous sort of comedies like uh, that, that utilize the, the concept of a terrorist, like Soul Plane is one. Like these two Arab guys get on a plane and, and the joke is, my God, they must be terrorists because they're Arabs, they've got turbans, they've got beards, they're wearing, you know, the, the baggy clothing and stuff like that. All right. But again, and we know that that's nonsense. We know that that's a stereotype and, and it's not true. Where does that stereotype come from? Well, it's no accident, I don't think, that basically sort of during the, the, the mid 90s, there was, there was a, a definite shift in movies, in films and stuff like that, from Russians being the enemy um, to um, Mus uh, Muslim or Middle Eastern fellows uh, being uh, the enemy. I mean, particularly like in the Rambo films. The Rambo films, in the second Rambo film, he actually, the Taliban uh, fight with him, which is an interesting thing, against the Russians. And then later on, you know, you're getting films like Executive Decision, uh, where the, 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 the uh, terrorists are a Muslim, or True Lies, uh, where, uh, where they're, they're Muslim, or uh, Courage Under Fire, or The Siege, or, or various things like that. I, th I believe even in the West Wing, they would, uh, after 9-11, they, they did, a, they did a, a show where they compared the, the hate, they basically said that the terrorists, it was a biblical thing, and they, and they, they basically, hook, line, and sinker went along with the official story of that the only reason for this is that A, that, that uh, terrorists did it, Osama bin Laden did it, which is nonsense, and B, that the only reason they did it is because they hate the West. Uh, and so, you know, you get this, these sorts of things still. Edward Bernays, as I say, he utilised the concepts of the, of the press release. One of his most famous um, outings was uh, Torches of Freedom, which uh, people, people might know. Um, is the concepts of lucky strike cigarettes where basically it, it used to be incredibly taboo for ladies to uh, to smoke cigarettes particularly in public it was considered a masculine um, pursuit and it, it was terribly uncouth for, for a young lady to be seen smoking cigarettes and so obviously that market was not available to the tobacco industry so they employed Edward Bernays what he did was he, he, he got a load of very attractive young debutantes and on his signal they all whipped out a lucky strike uh, and um, lit it. He also got his friend in the, uh, the newspaper to, to uh, turn up. I think it was the New York Times. Uh, and basically, they, um, they publicized it under the, the banner, uh, Torches of Freedom. Feminists go out and uh, smoke as a sign that they are uh, of equality. And so it was promoted that they, I mean, none of these girls were doing anything of the, th of the sort. They, they were just there because they've been paid to be there and been paid, you know, to, to, to follow Bernays' instructions. 
But, but the public, because this was a new thing, thought that this was a genuine organic news story. And so why would they question it? They take on all the information. It's a subtle form of hypnotism, really, because it's, it's like a deceit. If you don't think that you're being fooled, you can go in sort of in the back door, if you know, and you, you're basically straight at the, con uh, the, the subconscious with no critical analysis from, um, from the, the conscious mind. Um, other things that he did, he promoted the concept of a heavy breakfast. You know, he basically, he was employed by, um, I think it was bacon, um, uh, specifically uh, bacon manufacturers. And so what he did was he, he went out and he got what's called a third-party advocate statement. A third-party advocate is where you go to an authority figure. That that doctor. Knowledge. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Nine out of ten doctors recommend it. Nine out of ten de dentists recommend it. And so he did this with uh, Bacon and got their recommendation. It wasn't their medical recommendation. They just happened to be doctors. And that's an important point because this is, this is a concept called weasel words, which is, you know, a sentence doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means. For example, um, helps remove the visible signs of dandruff. What does that sentence actually mean? It means nothing. Helps. It doesn't, that means it aids towards. It doesn't mean it does anything. It means it, it helps. Uh, visible signs uh, and towards. All of these words have got subtle double meanings. That actually means nothing. That means this product might do something. It might make you fly. It probably won't, but it might. That's exactly what that means. So, uh, and he was doing this sort of thing again in the 20s, promoting the concept of bacon and eggs as, as a heavy breakfast. And this is, I believe, where we get the concept that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I and mean, it could well be, if basically, you're going out there and, and um, doing a lot of physical labor and such like that. But, but if you're not, then uh, essentially a lot of that's going to be sort of empty calories. And then he was also, he started the concept of a quality that is promoted as, uh, in a product that is actually nothing to do with the, the product. And the one that he, he did was ivory soap. And he, he, he made a lot of um, competitions where he proved that his soap was the lightest soap and it produced the creamiest lather. That's got nothing to do with the quality of the soap. But basically, you know, that's, that's where uh, you get all these sort of advertising tricks. And so Edward Bernays was essentially the person that, that started this. And it doesn't just work on an advertising basis. It, it works on a societal basis. You're in a constant state of propaganda to keep the status quo afloat, essentially. And to, you know, because there's so many lies in, in foreign policy and domestic policy. There's so much corruption on every single level. That if you weren't barraged with this constantly, sooner or later you start to pick through it. And so, I mean, I think that's why, you know, it, people like us perhaps do, because, you know, I'm not interested in sports. So I, I had a couple of free hours so, and go, hang on, this, this is rubbish. Look at this. This is nonsense. They're lying to us. That's got nothing to do with the product. And people are eating it up. That's absolutely right. I'm also, I don't follow sports either. And when somebody asks me, how can you not be watching this or that game? And honestly, I have so many more things to do and, and, and research. But anyway, another aspect of uh, the, the, the agenda that Bernays pushed is the fluoridation of the water supply, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was the person that basically approached, um, I think it's Alco. And, um, uh, and, and again, it was, it was this, this nonsensical third-party advocates that, that he, it, was, it was directly from Bernays that this concept that fluoridation was good for, for the teeth, uh, particularly the teeth of children. It's nonsensical. It's, it's absolute rubbish. It's just not true. But it's what, again, 
it's one of these things, it becomes a truism. You've got all these particular phrases that sort of dot out throughout history. History is written by the winners, repeat a lie. Uh, often enough, it becomes the truth that uh, for a lie to be successful, it has to be big enough. All of these, these sorts of things. And it, they're absolutely true. You basically repeat things and nonsensical. All right, here's one. The, the, this is accepted as, as completely true. Um, Sting, you know, from the police, the musician Sting. Right. One of the things that he's known for is his love of yoga and also that he's, he's apparently a tantric sex master. And this has been repeated in numerous sources, numerous interviews, numerous people. Whenever it's brought up, people say, oh, blah, 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 stings, it's tantric sex. His, uh, his wife, uh, Trudy Styler, basically did an interview with um, the NME a couple of years ago. And she says, yeah, I'm amazed that that still comes out. It's nonsense. He, 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 Bob Geldof said that to a journalist as a joke in the mid 80s and nobody bothered to check it and everybody goes about it i mean this is what have every time a hold on so this is not true then no it's not true it was a joke <laughs> i used to like, think that i used to think that it was true well i mean he he's very happy that people do think he's true but even he said no it was, just, it was a joke that got out of hand like you know, this this is the thing people take things, anything, and 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 they jump on it. Oh yeah, that that that. Bob Geldof was the one then, huh? Yes, apparently so. Yeah. But the, the water fluoridation you mentioned, Alco, which is an aluminum co company, could it yeah. be that disposing of aluminum would be so expensive? And what a better way? Well, than it was killing. Sorry, to interrupt. It was no, no, go ahead. It was killing cows. That was the main problem. Uh, because they were putting it into the water supply and so it was getting into the water table these cows were drinking it and they were dying and so they had to think of a way to actually dispose of this um, again the, the most effective utilisation of fluoride up until that point had been done um, it wasn't only done in, in certain uh, concentration camps in Nazi Germany Poland various places like that it was also done in Soviet gulags and you know a lot of people have come out and basically said Oh, this is this is not true. It turned out to be a lie. This is blind, blind, blah. This came out in the the, the trial against I.G. Farben. I mean, some people possibly know like I.G. Farben, Siemens, Hugo Boss. All of these very strange, disparate companies got their start in in Nazi Germany. Um, I mean, Auschwitz was was a rubber plant essentially. It was working for I.G. Farben and, and various other um, companies and, and providing slave labour. Um, and you know, so so. They knew about the qualities of it, they, so that, that leads you to believe that perhaps it's not just a case of uh, economic concerns or anything like that. You know, you, you could make the argument that, that we genuinely didn't know what it was doing, but if A, they've they previously seen it used in concentration camps and gulags, and B, the reason that this is necessitated is because cows are dying. And then, you know, they, these are not nice people, basically. But as, as you, you previously said, both Walter Lippmann and Edward Bernays said on numerous state, uh, times that, that essentially the public is too stupid to be allowed to make its own decisions and that, that they should be attacked on a subconscious level to be directed. Um, like, I mean, Walter Lippmann explicitly said that the, ge the general public should be spectators. They should not be participants in anything of any real significance and that a specific elite class that he just so happened to be involved with should be the primary decision makers and, and those that sort of dictate where society goes. You know, we were programmed to believe that if an authority figure says something, then it must be true. And I've always, even as a child, I used to wonder, 
There's the doctor with the white robe. There's the priest. There's the, uh, the, the fireman. There's the pilot. And we don't know a pilot. We come into the plane and we trust the pilot with our lives. We go to a doctor. We trust him or her with our lives. Mm-hmm. Why do we trust so much? Well, I mean, it's in, there are, are innate um, psychological reasons. I mean, there's sociological reasons as well, because, for example, like, um, you know, you see somebody who's very, very successful. You, you could make, the, you, you could make the, the assumption that basically, look, they've obviously done very well for themselves. They obviously know what they're talking about, or they're obviously very, very skilled in what they do because people go to them. So there are certainly soci- sociological uh, reasons those those can also be manipulated like we're saying third party advocacy certain word games certain appeals to scientific uh one that's brilliant is um spurious rigor okay uh this product will make you 5.79 percent better wow if if you know if they're so accurate with their their sort of percentages well they must be telling the truth and we don't know if they're making that up like you'll never be able to prove that but that again that, that gives you the concept that, that this is a good thing to do. They must know what they're doing. And then it comes down to sort of certain innate instinctual um, um, drives that you have within yourself. I mean, we are by, by nature sort of a tribal animal. And there are certain things that are absolutely true. Um, if somebody's bigger than you, don't pick a fight with them because you'll probably lose. And, you know, that sort of thing. So the authority figure comes, comes from the concept of like an alpha male, an alpha male in the tribe. The, the problem is that essentially those sort of things aren't really necessary anymore. They're sort of useless old things. There isn't really a concept of an alpha male anymore because, you know, we live in a monogamous society. We, we're not out there fighting each other and stuff like that. Yeah, there's, you know, these uh, sort of sociological sort of uh, things like that. But it's but these things, they're not a natural construct to anything where, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, competing with somebody for a better job, competing with somebody for a bigger house, more attractive. Well, they're not natural processes. They're second nature. They're societal little construct, constructs that have basically been put, on, put upon us. Do you know what I mean? You don't see um, uh, chimpanzees arguing over who's got the best car. Or, or anything like that. Yeah, of course, there are, again, certain instinctual things like jealousy, like, uh, you know, envy and stuff like that. But again, in a natural con- concept, like, you know, that, that, that works to go, hang on, that guy's got a be- better house than me. Oh, hang on, if I had the be- better house or whatever, hut, you know, uh, nest, then I'd be as happy as him. Fair enough, you can see how that would work. But but when it comes to, say, modern society, and it's like, oh, wouldn't you like a car so that you're you you know you, you're as good as P. Diddy or, or whatever? Those things, they're not necessary to your survival. They're not actually going to improve your lot any any tangible way. But it's, it's marketed to you in such a, in such a sense that that, that that works, basically. I think of the term planned obsolescence. You yeah, know, you and I are probably too young to remember this, but you know, in the past, you had a refrigerator, and some people report from the 30s or 40s that if they still have them, they still work. Even that, uh, there's a fire station somewhere in the United States that has a light bulb that yeah, has yeah, over a hundred years, and they celebrate its birthday every year. So appliances, now cars. You know, you buy a car, you get a loan for about what four or five years. After the five years are over, that's when the big repairs come along. And now health. Do you think that the pharmaceutical industry is also treating us like 
you know, plan obsolescence. We know that at a certain age, we need to have certain medicines. Define plan obsolescence and how it came about. Well, uh, to be honest, I'm not, I'm not really sure how it came about. I assume it came about from sort of elite people just, um, deciding that, you know, we, we can sell this, this person something again and again and again. And also we can dictate roles. I mean, one part of planned obsolescence is the sort of dumbing down of people, the, the, the reduction of skills, the necessity for people to use gadgets all the time. Uh, no, nobody reads maps anymore. Everyone uses sat-navs and stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? And, and uh, all of these things are sold to you in, in a protective way, like with the medicine and stuff like that. Well, we've got all these new things now that, that are going to, you know, uh, help you when this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens, which is a double-edged sword because essentially what that's doing is he's putting into your mind the concept that A, this might happen and B, this is normal to happen. And I'm not sure that that's true, to be quite honest. I mean, it's very controversial subjects and such like that, but autism, for example, that is becoming a lot more common and a lot more uh, expected, you know, it, uh, and perhaps people aren't making connections to, as to, or correlations as to what's happening and, and why this is increasing. Um, uh, Alzheimer's and, and, and certain cancers and, and, and other things like that. And people don't make the connections that, that one of one of the terrible things is about the, the medical industry is that, that essentially it's a business and people don't really understand that. There's not an altruistic this there isn't a health organization that that's that's there that exists purely to make people well. They might make some people well, but but they're in, in this to, to make money and and again this comes back to this concept of who knows best and blah bloody bloody blah and one of the big things at the minute is this concept of cancer and you know chemotherapy versus the concept of like um cannabis oil or, or, or thc and stuff like this uh, and you know very very promising stuff that's coming out of it but not being looked at by by a lot of people in, in the sort of mainstream medic medicine and you've got to start to ask yourself why that that sort of thing comes about uh, and again a lot of this comes down to nobody taking responsibility for their own actions basically people being assigned roles it's 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 frighteningly close to sort of brave new world do you know the concept of you i'm sure you've read it the concept of you're born into a position of course there's that that is becoming more and more and more but it's subtler because you we've got more toys you know what i mean and the toys and the gadgets and the this and the interaction and the social thing you know we're more uh, socially sort of we've got more fingers on more nodes than ever before in the entire world and it's that sort of a the information overload of the, of the thing but b also the sort of flattering into stupidity that that allows people to really to, to sort of settle into these easy norms and this concept of like nobody's looking around and going hang on this is this is not very nice actually this is this isn't very spiritually fulfilling that i'm not actually being treated very well in my work um, blah, 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 because there's, there's reasons, there's established reasons for that. I've got to put up with it because, um, you know, the economy's not bad. But hey, this program's on the television, and this program's on the television, and the new iPhone's coming out, and this. So there's all these little things that basically, these few easy pleasures that tick along enough just to make you not 
go, for God's sake, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. I mean, and what's quite interesting about that, you could compare that aspect of society, you know, the, the people who are very sort of, I, I work for the weekend, blah, de, blah, de, blah, and, you know, I'm, I'm working my entire life just so that I've got this. I mean, when do you have this period? Like, it's a five-year period after you retire, actually, where hopefully you've paid for your house and stuff like that, and then you've got five years to, to enjoy before you realize, crikey, prices have really gone up. I perhaps didn't save as much money for it. Do you know what I mean? And there's these constant pressures on everybody all the time. This is not, this is not a mistake. This is by design. The, this is the manufacture of consent. This is the, the sort of the, the organizing of your life and, and the, the pushing you into things. And what's interesting is that that societal construct is exactly the same as a Skinner box or a rat in a maze. You know the concept of you can get a rat in a maze to press a lever and it gets a pellet. And it goes brilliant. And next time you press the lever, it gets electrocuted. And it goes, oh, that's very strange. So next time he presses the thing because he's not getting any food, it gets another pellet. Next time it doesn't get it doesn't get anything, and so the, what's bizarre at that point is they start pressing really really fast because they go oh crikey well I need to improve my situation this is this is confusing and so rats will constantly press on the pellet and basically they'll put up with the not getting stuff and the electrocution because every fifth go they get a pellet and so their life's not great but it could be worse and that that's the, the these are the sort of the, the, the things that people uh, in control utilize, the fact that people react to stimulus, you know, and, and a lot of it is, is A, uncontrollable, and B, particularly insidious because you're not looking out for it. You know, as, as we, were, we were talking about the concept of, um, the, you know, this obsolescence and stuff like that, why would anyone question a doctor? Because everybody knows that doctors know best. Do you know what I mean? I mean, the, 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 there's a certain cognitive dissonance because I can show you doctors recommending camel cigarettes over other cigarettes and stuff like that. And so people are always, uh, they're, they're very willing to say, oh, yeah, in the past, yeah, no, in the past we were wrong. Every, right up until this second, we were wrong. But, but from this second going forward, we were right because I'm not stupid and I'm being flattered by the media and I'm being flattered by this and I'm being flattered by this and I've got access to this. How, I mean, one of the concepts is how on earth could anybody be fooled? Because I, I, I'm online and so I read all these newspapers and I watch all these news channels and I watch all these alternative bloggers and blah, 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 blah. So there's no way that anybody could lie to me. And, and, and aside from so the alternative media, the mainstream media, as I say, you probably know as well, there's about six companies that control about 95% of worldwide output. Yeah, the mediaopoly. Exactly, exactly. This is the whole point. And so this, the, it's not, this is what I'm sort of trying to get across, that, that all these seemingly disparate aspects of existence, societal norms, music, drugs, pharmacopoeia, um, celebrity lifestyle, um, sports, all of these things, they, they're not separate. They're a, they're a system. They're part of a systematic web of control. Uh, and if you don't like football, you've got hockey. If you don't like hockey, you've got boxing. If you don't like boxing, you've got baseball. If you don't like that, you've got extreme sports. And do you know what I mean? And like the genius about all of these things, again, is the soul to people as if You've discovered this. This is this is for you. This is an organic thing. And, and again, people people define their individuality by it's, it's oxymoronical in a sense. They define their individuality by ascribing to a group. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm a Niners fan. I'm a goth. 
I'm a punk. Do you know? Do you see what I mean? And it's it's this sort of thing of a collectivized individuality, and because it's sold so brilliantly, you don't realise. Hang on, everybody's wearing uniform. We're all we're all. You can tell I'm a punk because I wear these shoes and this these trousers and this t-shirt, and I've got this hairstyle. You can tell I listen to hip hop because it's exactly the same thing. Do you know what I mean? So these these things that people take, it's like. It's like Facebook or MySpace or stuff like that. Look at my MySpace page. It shows how individual I am. It's got all these Cure songs and all this, the, this uh, Japanese movies. Look how look, the, that's these these are trappings. Do you know what I mean? These these are stickers that you've applied to the model car that is you. That's fine. That's that's okay. Again, I'm not trying to be elitist and say, "Oh, wake up, everybody!" Blah blah. It's absolutely fine to enjoy all these things. Just understand that that you know that. They're, they're insidious in some ways, basically. And this is basically, we'll talk about this in a minute, Gustav Le Bon uh, regarding the herd behavior. Yeah. But, you know, sports, doesn't that come from even the Roman times, uh, bread and circuses to, yeah, to, to pacify the population? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting you mentioned the, the Roman times because, uh, uh, I mean, Alan Watt actually um, talks about this as well, the concept of traveling players or people that would, would come in and... Um, They tell the stories of the day, the the news and stuff like that, and it was it was vital that everybody was there because this is where they got their concept of what's happening outside the gate. Do you know what I mean? So if they can dictate the stories again, the pictures that people get in their heads, then they can they they can see how people are going to react. For example, if you if all these these players keep turning up and say, "Don't go outside, mate," because um, don't go to if you go 20 feet outside, you're going to fall off the edge of the world. Well, we might as well stay inside because. How are we to know anything, any other um, uh, reality? And that's that's an extreme form. But I don't know uh, if the Romans are there saying every every story that is portrayed by these players has. Uh, uh, I'm just going to show my lack of knowledge of uh, a Spartan or a Persian or whatever is, is the enemy. You know, they're going to they, as, as a distinct other. Then that's the only knowledge that people have of this. And this this is tracked today through. Film and um, film and soap operas, really. Uh, I mean, I think I think in America, soap operas are slightly slightly different to England. Uh, England, like they're kind of you know the bold and the beautiful and stuff like that. We tend to have like really dismal, grimy, horrible things like EastEnders and stuff that basically show or purport to show working class life. And one one thing that I keep I mention again and again because it's it's it's, um, it's very true is whenever in, in in one of these British soap operas that a a main character is in some sort of distress or whatever, they'll they'll go to their drinks cabinet or whatever and they'll get a double vodka and they'll slam back the double vodka, and so we go oh brilliant so we know that Peggy or whoever she she's upset we we know she's upset because she's um, slamming back a double vodka, and you flip that around in your brain and go. All right, so if you're upset, a reasonable response, because I've seen it three times a week for the past seven years, is to slam back a double vodka. That's a perfectly reasonable and, and justified societal reason to have a double vodka. So the next time I'm in some sort of situation like that, I may very well follow their lead, because this is the established norm. You know, we get this concept in soap operas and films of uh, the hero making a grand gesture. You know, writing in, writing a name in fire on on a lawn, standing outside with a, a radio above your head and stuff like that. This is where you learn things. Or did I said this on another radio show? At my school, 
everybody learned how to French kiss from watching Top Gun because there was a scene in that where basically you saw a tongue going in and out of each other's mouths and like before that everyone <laughs> nobody knew what what the hell that was it's like wow that's a new thing I was about seven at the time you know I wasn't, I wasn't an idiot like, but um but you know, I mean, this is where people get their their knowledge of the outside world. How does anybody know what a panda does? Like, do you know, what I mean, nobody's seen a panda or a kangaroo, or well, people in China and Australia have, obviously. But but you you know what I mean? You get this concept of, uh, and it, it comes down to stereotypes. I'm sure a lot of people who don't know what I look like hear my my British accent and probably have have an image of me or whatever. And probably a lot of you might be absolutely right, but uh, sadly, but. Um, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean, and and the concept of sport. I mean, this was again, it was taken as concept of bread and circuses. It was taken um, up by Zbigniew Brzezinski. Um, he, I think it was in uh, the Technotronic era. He talks about utilizing sport and mass television events um, as as amusement focus to, to you know get people following teams, divide and conquer, get them involved, and you know get everybody. Do you know where the majority of people are of a Saturday afternoon or a Monday evening? They're either at the game or they're watching the game. And so, do you know what I mean? It's an incredibly brilliant way uh, of, um, of, of, um, of, of controlling of distracting people. you and exactly. controlling and distracting you. But let me just take a moment. Uh, you know, for example, you were mentioning autism. I, I think of, 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 you know, all the research that so many people are doing, including... There's one person who went to doctors to say, look, there's a link between vaccines and and uh, autism. And co the doctors continue to say that, no, you can't prove that. The pharmaceutical industry, of course, with their, their mighty dollar, they, they fought against that. But he went and found, for example, at an Amish Mennonite community in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He realized, wait a second, the incidence of autism is one in 50 in the United States. But in this community is one in 166. So he wanted to know why. So he went there and found out that the only kids that had autism, there were two who were adopted from China who were vaccinated probably out of the country. And the other two, the parents worked at a mercury mine. The rest were completely free. Now, why isn't the media showing this this data to the public? Well, I'll tell you one of the reasons they don't do it, and this is, this is horrifying. This is absolutely horrifying. Well, I'll tell you what, right, Well, I found this out just this week. Do you know, it's absolutely, completely legal for the news to lie to you because nobody could be expected, because the, the just legal justification, and advertisers as well, the news and advertisers can tell you flat-out lies. And one of the reasons is there is no way that a reasonable person could be expected to think that any claim made on the news or advertising would be real. That's the legal argument. So, I mean, basically this happened when Fox got caught lying about various things and went to court and said, yeah, you've got a legal right to do it. You know, it's not, this is the point, it's, it's crazy, it's absolutely crazy. And the other thing is, um, it's to do with cross-ownership of shareholders. People don't think about this, but and this, this trickles into all sorts of milieus. Um, for example, Time Warner. They own certain news media outlets and such like that, but they also uh, own uh, or uh, are conglomerately connected to weapons manufacturers. Lockheed Martin, I believe, is one. I could be wrong about that, but various things like that. So there's two things that will happen, right? A, they won't do any detrimental uh, stories on news for two reasons. One, 
because it's you know it's bad you know it's, it's bad for interpersonal relations and the person uh, the the anchor knows he's going to get fired. Two, and this is the real killer: it's illegal. It is illegal for a company to do something that is detrimental to the shareholders. Right? Okay, I'll just let that ruminate for a minute. Okay. It is illegal for a company to do something that is detrimental to the shareholders. You know what is detrimental to the shareholders? Lowering prices. That's right. That's crazy. And people are going, why is my electric bill going up? Why is my gas bill going up? You know why it's going up? Because they have a duty to the shareholders, not to the customers. This is another thing. The customer is the most important thing to the business. It, it really, really isn't. It really is not. If that was the case, customers would be treated with respect and dignity. And I've never, ever been treated with respect and dignity by any corporation. So, you know, this, this is utter, utter twaddle. It's, it, but it, but it's, it's crazy. This is the point. And you'll get that sort of cross-contamination trickling not only into the news media and stuff and such like that, also into various publications. One of the, cra one of the other crazy things is, uh, I think that the guy that you're talking about, I think he, I forget his name, but I think he's the bloke that had his journal published in the Lancet and then basically a retraction a few years later put out by the Lancet but I think he's also been recent, recently proved correct or the Supreme Court in America has taken there's been certain cases again this has not been shown in the, in the mainstream media where um, pharmacological pharmaceutical companies have actually been sued recently or I don't know whether they've actually been sued but basically the, the case has, has found has, has ruled that their autism was caused by certain vaccinations so and again, this is this is not in the mainstream press. Um, but the, the the crazy thing is that entities like the Pentagon um, and the NSA and the CIA they they own publishing houses. Like they, this is again one of the things that you wouldn't realise. But you sort of magazines that are going out there, really strange, bizarre magazines that you wouldn't think. Like obviously things like Guns and Ammo, you can see the perhaps agenda behind them. But like magazines like Vibe magazine, which is a hip hop magazine, has got a financing stream or, or used to have a financing stream directly from the CIA. And why on earth would that that be there? Hopefully we'll, we'll talk about that that in a bit. But basically you get an embedded journalists and you're also getting the the CIA and the Pentagon publishing uh, manuscripts magazines and such like that um i think it was in the in the early 90s it was discovered that the pentagon was basically publishing about a thousand magazines separate magazines a year which made it 16 times larger than the the, the largest legitimate publishing house in america and so again what you get is you get an embedded journalist and stuff like that who actually work for the intelligence agencies they're reviewing books and other publications that are written by other intelligence agencies and then that's how you get this control and again it, it, it is what's clever about it, a lot of the things people would say oh, she's not it's not this web of evil people you're absolutely right there isn't this web of evil people but due to the constraints of things like people just doing their job and the concepts of this um cross conglomeration you know you can't do anything bad for the shareholders you can't do anything uh that's that's going to muck up your sister company you can't do anything like that some people have just locked into the system i mean that's another mind control program that sickens me but you hear it every day oh grow up that's business i'm sorry but you know 
nice guys finished last, bloody bloody blah, blah. We've got to make these redundancies because it's good for the company. You know, all these things, if you take a step back and think about what you've just said, it's nonsensical. It's absolutely nonsensical. The company that you work for, that you're striving so hard to impress, it's not a real entity. You're not going to impress it. So doing something for the benefit of the company, like, is, is crazy. And, and people lose their humanity. Do you know what I mean? And, and uh, yeah, I'm not having to go at anybody because, like I say, it's hard times and everybody's got to... It's a system, it's just, as I say, it's very, very difficult to get out of this system. And even if you sort of know about it and you can see the webs and stuff like that and go, oh, this is horrible, this is a control system, blah, 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 blah. There's still very little... Uh, it's very, very difficult to do a lot, anything out of it. You, you can't immediately go off the grid. You need money to survive. That's another fabulous control system. And so, you know, the, the, the point is, Mel, sometimes it comes across as, oh, bloody, oh, this is rubbish, and this is rubbish, and this is rubbish, and rubbish. And it comes across as like having a go at the, the, the people for watching soaps or going to work or doing well in a company or stuff like that. No, no, absolutely not. Each their own. You go for it. Like, Christ, you know, there's enough problems in this world without someone like me telling you you can't watch X Factor or whatever. You know, go ahead. If, if you get some pleasure out of it, fine. But, but this is the point. It is... It is a control system. And societal control systems are as old as society. Well, society and civilization. Even exactly. the word civilization. What was there before civilization? Isn't civilization even the word to civilize us, to control us by a government? Government. Governing obviously. your mind. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, the control of the mind. Yeah, quite. I mean, that, that's exactly the point, Mel. So... You know, the, 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 this is this is why these stories don't get on the mainstream. And, it, and you know, I've said this at uh, talks and stuff like that. Obviously, there's a lot of kooky stuff out there. Do you know what I mean? But 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 an incredible amount of people. Andrew Johnson, Richard D. Hall, numerous other people. Um, incredibly meticulous research. Do you know, what I mean? John Coleman, uh, uh, name hundreds. Dave McGowan, Jim Keith, um, Bruce Schlein, Martin Lee. Brilliant, brilliant people out there, but but this is the point. It, it is often sort of, A, sort of, you know, put out there on the fringes and stuff like that. I'll tell you what there is as well, Mal, there's, there's, there's a concerted effort at the minute that's been going on for a few years now of um, normalising and uh, making trendy conspiracy theories, basically. You know, there, I mean, there was obviously the X-Files and stuff like that. Um, I mean, the best example of this, right, okay, and again, like, it... I'm not having a good, like the, the JFK assassination. I, I actually really like talking about the JFK assassination with people, you know, discussing the different theories and stuff like that. Was it the driver? Was it a guy in the, uh, in the, uh, the grassy knoll? Was he hiding down the drain? I've even seen some people claim it was Jackie that killed him. Uh, you know, was it Oswald? Was Oswald under mind control? Was Oswald a double agent? Was Jack Ruby connected to the Genovese mafia? You know, you can go on and talk about it for ages and ages and ages. It's fascinating. And all of a sudden it dawns on you that you're not talking about, we're not talking about a cultural event. We're talking about somebody's dad being murdered. Do you know what I mean? And this is, this is another very, very clever thing. You get a sort of uh, emotional compassion fatigue. You can show things in many, many times until people are completely desensitized to it, either through the horrendous trauma of it and then your brain basically just tries to sort of shut it out or just by a, by a normalization of it. And again, that doesn't mean that we should stop talking about the Kennedy assassination, but, but basically 
you know, it has become a pop culture event that it's, it's long enough ago and it's safe enough to talk about it without getting into the sort of nitty gritty emotions of it. And, you know, that's, that's, it's not a cultural event, it's a crime. Do you know what I mean? And so there, there's a sort of disparity about sort of talking about it like that, any of them. But then, you know, you're getting all these mainstream programs. And again, it's a very double-edged sword. Things like conspiracy theory, the, you know, the Jesse Ventura stuff like that. Like, there's very, very mixed feelings about all of these programs because, you know, it, it, it gets people to know about stuff that perhaps they wouldn't know about uh, before. But the danger is, again, that it becomes like a sort of element of pop culture and, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, the, we know about 9-11. Yeah, yeah, we know about the, the Philadelphia experiment. Yeah, yeah, we know about all this blah, 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 blah. It was just that. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like the moon landing and stuff like that. Again, a lot of people who, who would who believe that the moon landing was fake is yeah you know it's fake and it's become established facts you know we nobody's got that outrage about it anymore like no yeah it's fake they lied to us they're lying to your face for god's sake you know get some anger but show it a million times do this bloody bloody blah, blah, blah occasionally make people feel a bit silly by by having somebody out and going no you're wrong look we're going to embarrass you in front of a large crowd and again all these things are control mechanisms basically well you get all these false flags you get uh, in the united states aurora colorado let me pick on yeah. uh, sandy hook and even lately the boston bombing mm. one thing that i found from that incident and people don't question it is that they arrested one of the alleged perpetrators, yeah. and he was naked, handcuffed, going inside a car. All of a sudden, the next day, I see a picture of the man riddled with bullets. Supposedly, right. he, got, he got in an altercation. Now, wait a second. I just saw the man being uh, taken into a police car. How did that happen the next day, and why isn't anybody questioning it? Well, again, it's, it's a cognitive dissonance sort of thing. It, it's, it, it, come, it boils down to two things, essentially. One is certain people wouldn't even dream to question that. And so what they'll do is they'll justify it in their brain. They'll go, oh, maybe I didn't see that. Or maybe I was mistaken. Okay, fair enough. And they'll, they'll do sort of all these mental acrobatics to basically to, 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 to justify it. So then they'll, they'll go, um, you know, no, that, that, that's, that's not the case. So they wouldn't even question it in the first place. And then the, you know, other people that do question it basically just get ridiculed all the time. Uh, or alternatively, some spurious answer, some ludicrous answer comes out and says, says this, this was the case, basically. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is, it, it is ridiculous. The other thing, the other point is that people, uh, the second point, sorry, is that it's a, it, it's jarring. That's why cognitive dissidence exists, right? It's a thing called consensus trance. People in society, and this, this was Charles Tart, this is an established psychological thing. People, best way to explain this, right, okay, is, this, this might sound glib, but Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah, right? The parents of all the people on Nightmare on Elm Street, they murdered Freddy Krueger, you know? They all got together and they set him on fire and they murdered him. And then they pretended that it didn't happen because for the best, for the best of the ongoing society, until he came back in the dream, bloody, bloody, blah. What that is, that is a very, very basic example of consensus trance. We're all going to accept that this didn't happen. We know it happened. It's kind of like double think. 
you know what I mean? We know it happened, but we're going to pretend that it didn't happen because to acknowledge that it did happen would be to delve into the depths of our very dark psyche and establish bloodlust and certain other things like that. And it's the same principle with this RNF thing. It's so jarring. It's so like, my God, that's just such a slap across the face that some, some people will find that incredibly psychologically difficult to deal with. And it will be like a trauma. And so they'll, they won't deal with it. And again, that's not because they're weak-minded. That's because their brain is protecting them. And again, certain things like that. I mean, it's just like um, hidden in plain sight. So that's Sherlock Holmes' concept. The best place to hide something is, is, the, is, is right in front of somebody's face. Um, you know, because people aren't expecting it. You know, it's very difficult because we're coming at it from a different perspective where now, um, where we're looking for everything from a, from, uh, from, uh, from a different angle. You know, we're expecting this to be, every time a terrorist action goes, this, the, the first thing that comes to my mind isn't right, terrorist, it's right, okay, the government. So let's see where they've messed up and find, find it out. We're, we're, and, and that's based on knowledge of prior events. Okay. You can't assume, but that would be my starting point. Whereas other people, because essentially they've got a different mindset, um, would assume that, the, that it was, um, terrorists as the news media has said, because again, why, why would they lie? But particularly, yeah, with, with the, the Boston thing, it, it was horrific to watch the media whipping up witch hunts and and the way that the uh, the two they had profiles of the two kids i mean there's that photo of him grinning like which is so obviously photoshopped as well and but the, the way that they had these concepts of um of the of the two kids and they had profiles and pictures and twitter feeds blah 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 blah, blah immediately all over the world did that reminded me of a certain incident during the jfk assassination basically fletcher prouty who's the cia agent that basically talks about the connection of bell helicopters and certain other aspects of their involvement he was in australia on the day that that it, it happened and basically on the morning of the assassination there's a newspaper printed with with lee harvey oswald's picture in it and this must have been printed before the assassination took place so, you know, it's a setup, isn't it? And uh, you mentioned the Pentagon. I can only think of video games. And believe me, I played them. They're fun. Yeah. You know, single player, war stuff. It's fun. But I can also feel the difference in my brain if I played for too long. I wonder how many of these teenagers are so impressionable that after they, they get 20 levels and they spend days playing, after they finish the game, they think in their minds, I want to take this to the to the next level, to the real level. Let me go and, and find a recruiter. Do you think that the government spends money into video game production? Yes, definitely, definitely, definitely. It works on two, two levels. Again, one of the interesting points is that um, to normalize war, you know, like the drones, for example, and there's various other little sort of robotic things with, with guns, uh, on them that, that crawl about and um, you know can kill people at a, at a distance, not not just airborne ones, sort of ones that go on, on tracks and such, such like that as well. Um, and the people that control them, they control them using PlayStation or Xbox controllers. So that's that's very sinister if you think about it. It's normalising and like this this separation of, of death. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's easier to to kill somebody by pressing a button and watching it on a screen than by 
choking them to death, for example. I mean, it's an extreme example. But, but that is one certainly very dangerous aspect that they're utilizing. And it's not, it's not quite as simple as monkey see, monkey do, but it's that familiarity. You know, you sat there in a really nice, comfy recliner, like an, a lazy boy or whatever. You've got an enormous screen with the best graphics you've ever seen. And all you need to do is, um, is press one button and uh, you've won the level, essentially, because you're going to get praise, you might even get a medal, whatever. Do you know what I mean? This is how people would, would process it. And the other thing is that they certainly glamorize war. Um, like the Call of Duty uh, games, Battlefield and stuff like that. They make it a very exciting event and stuff like that. And again, it's, again, it's not really... That per se isn't terrible because every boy plays guns and war and shooting or cowboys and, Indians and cops and robbers and stuff like that. There's something in guys who like guns. Like, okay. But again, because people know that, the, these things are made to look very cool and very sexy and very exciting and stuff like that. As, as for the direct involvement of the um, military, I don't know this for a fact, but I, I certainly get the impression that the EA sports ones, uh, the, the EA games from playing those, they look very, very technologically um, realistic. And I wonder if there is a sort of cross-contamination. I don't know if other people have spoke about this, uh, but you can use um, military hardware. You can use what you want. You can use, um, use an aircraft carrier if they've got one spare. Uh, any Hollywood production company can, can approach the military of the Pentagon and ask to use their equipment, troops, locations, training grounds, all of this sort of stuff, and the military will do it on the proviso that it's beneficial for the military. And one of the subclauses of this contract is that basically they get final rewrite of the script. So as long as we are portrayed as the more powerful and the winner. Absolutely. And, and never portrayed in any way that would make um, the American military look foolish. There was a, in Tomorrow Never Dies, the boat that gets stolen, it was originally stolen by an American. Uh, and they swept in. It was no, 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 no. We're changing that, and changing it to Canadian. And, the, uh, and apparently, that wasn't good enough either. And I think in the final draft of the film, it was changed to uh, a French uh, uh, admiral lost the boat because they didn't need to borrow anything from the French military or film anywhere in France at that particular time. So that that was perfectly okay. Uh, Wind Talkers, which is that John Woo film with Nicolas Cage. There was an excellent movie. There was an entire. It is, but there's an entire character that was removed from that. That was all filmed and all sort of, it might be in the director's cut, I don't know. There's a character that basically goes around removing gold teeth from dead um, soldiers. Um, de uh, uh, it's Japanese, I believe, isn't it? The, the fighting. And this was an entire character that was seen shot with Nicolas Cage interacting with him, blah, blah, blah. And this was completely cut from the film because it was detrimental to it. Um, Forrest Gump's another one. You know, <laughs> you know, he's obviously uh, 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 mentally handicapped, and uh, his friend, the guy Bubba, who's, uh, who's sat next to him, he's obviously sort of, yeah. you know, uh, in, in a similar sort of boat. That's not by accident. Like, there were, there were extra scenes that were shown in that film uh, that, that didn't make it to the final cut. Um, basically, he was supposed to be part of what's called the... Um, it, it was... Robert McNamara set it up. It was, it was a series of... Um, troops that would f that had failed mental aptitude tests and normally would be considered mentally subnormal and would not be allowed to to be involved in the war. And basically, these guys were swept up and all put into one unit, which was which was it was termed the idiot corps. 
um, you know, that's not my phrase, that's what he was called by Robert McNamara. And that was, again, supposed to be a plot point in um, uh, Forrest Gump. Uh, and Forrest Gump basically did the military removed, uh, this is no, no, we're not having that. We, we, you're just not doing that. There's no way we're going to allow that. And numerous of the films have, have done very, very similar things. And so I wonder if, um, I mean, I'm almost certain that certain computer games must adhere to the same contractual um, you know, resolutions because, because they're so very involved with, with the aspects of the military, aren't they? Do you know what I mean? And we have to take our one and only intermission, but when we come back, I want to discuss why it is, you mentioned sports, you mentioned how people have this herd mentality, even, you know, up there in England, you have the hooligans, you have people all over the world uh, playing soccer, and if they, their team loses, all of a sudden they get out of their stadium and they start flipping cars and setting stores on fire. All this hurt mentality, but also one important thing, since we seem to be always drumming for war. Yeah. Support the troops. Isn't that the biggest one of all? Support the troops. Because you can be against the war, but if you're against the war, it means you're not supporting the troops and you're not a patriot. But I want to get your reaction when we come back. How do people get in touch with your work, buy your new book? Oh, uh, right. Well, they, they can get it from uh, several places. Obviously, from, from my website, which is uh, neilsandersmindcontrol.com. Uh, I've also got an email there. There's, there's loads of videos on the website as well. I've got an email there, so if anyone wants to contact me, I'm also on Facebook, uh, just as Neil Sanders, if anyone wants to get me um, on there. And the book's also available from David Icke Books and uh, from richplanet.net. Excellent. Folks, don't go anywhere. This is such a fascinating interview. We're learning so much more and more when we come back. I'm here with my special guest, Neil Sanders. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy. Now tell you what, it's mind control. For they practice what you preach 
So they're always in your reach I take slavery in these days It's mind control They make it attractive To get men distracted Corrupting you, polluting you Destroying your soul This is Freeman, and you're listening to Veritas.